We're going to have the Bible readings now. The first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 31, which appears on page 512 of the Pew Bibles. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and it's on page 798. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, thank you again. It's nice to be here. And uh, I believe there's a place for notes on your sheet, and you'll see the sermon outline is very flexible. Uh, so just so you know where we're going, there's two points to cover. <clears throat> One is we're going to look at the benefits of being justified by faith, and the, other, the second point is we're going to look at the assurance that we have, uh, those who are justified by faith. And so we come uh, to chapter 5 where Paul... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> okay. 
But Paul begins, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. And Paul, for four chapters, has been talking about being justified by faith. It's the, it's the phrase or the idea that he has built this, uh, this message around, this gospel message, this good news message. Because we, uh, as humanity, have a problem. We were sinners, we are rebels against God, we are disobedient, and we are therefore facing God's condemnation and out of a relationship with God. That's the problem. The second part of the problem is there's nothing we can do about it. And that's what Paul's been talking about in these four chapters, and you've been in this series, so you've been coming along on this journey. And you've seen how Paul has said that there is no one who is righteous, no one who's done good, all have turned away, no one seeks God. And, and everyone faces God's condemnation. <clears throat> it's a problem, and it's a pretty major problem, and we can't do anything about it. But God can do something about it, and God has done something about it, and God has sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. He died on the cross for us to take the penalty that we deserve so that we're no longer condemned, but in fact we are reconciled to God. We are now made righteous. We have been justified. And that's the solution. And so that's where you've been. That's where we come up, up to speed now to chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. <clears throat> and just to, to be clear again about that justification idea, it's a legal term. It was used in the law courts. It meant to declare someone to be righteous or in the right. It's the opposite of condemn. And so though we were once guilty of sin... Uh, disobedient and rebellious against God and facing condemnation, now we've been declared righteous and not guilty and in God's courtroom we have no case to answer. We have been justified. And because God did it, all we can do is trust God that he has done it and so we are justified by faith. Another way we might look at it, which is a little less technical, is that idea of when two friends have a falling out over some issue. And they reconcile. And then one of them will say, are we good? And the other one will say, we're good. Yeah, you ever heard that, that kind of thing happen? I don't know if it's just on TV or not, but you know, that, that sort of idea. We good? We're good. We can move on. We've put it behind us. And so in a technical sense, uh, in a non-technical sense, that's, that's kind of the idea of being justified by faith and being put into a right relationship with God. But what does that mean for us? I've been reading a book <clears throat> called the code, uh, the code Book, and I love this book, and, 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 and I know my, my wife's just sitting there thinking, oh, he's not going to talk about this book again because I keep going on about this book. But it's a great book. It's about the history of codes. It's about the battle between the code makers and the code breakers over the centuries. And to make a code, you need a key. So the person encodes a message by using a key, and then the recipient decodes the message by using the same key, by reversing the process. And uh, the, the weakness in the system is that if the enemy gets a hold of the key or can work out the key, they can decipher your message. So uh, in, in this um, history of code making, around, around the 1950s and 60s, the British Secret Service, a guy in the British Secret Service 
had the idea of maybe, maybe we can encode a message without, without both the sender and the receiver having the same key. Is that possible? Because no one had ever thought that was possible. And he thought maybe it's possible. And he actually worked out a way of doing it. He worked out that it was possible. And everybody uh, agreed, yeah, what you are saying is possible. Now, I won't tell you what it is, mainly because I don't understand it, but, but, it, <clears throat> but it was possible. The only problem was, it, it was no, there was no way of actually doing it. And it was called an existence theorem. I'd never come across that term before, but it was called an existence theorem. The solution uh, was there, was beautiful, a beautiful solution. And it worked, and everybody could see, yes, it works, but it wasn't working because it couldn't be implemented. And the next step in, in the uh, process was someone came along and worked out a mathematical way of implementing uh, this, this idea that he'd come up with. But because the mathematics was so involved and in, in, involved such huge numbers, no one, uh, the, well, the computers at the time weren't capable of processing it. So we had even, even, even a, a fuller solution, but still no way of putting it into practice. And so there was this existence theorem, a beautiful solution that worked, but it wasn't working. It wasn't happening. And it seems to me that the gospel can be like that. We can look at what God has done and we can see the gospel and we can say, what a, what a wonderful solution to the problem. And it works. We can see that it works, it makes sense. But is it working? Is it really working in our lives? You see, the, the, the gospel is a great idea, but is it more than that? Is it something that is actually infusing our lives, our attitudes, our decisions, our actions and our reactions? To, to the things that we face in life as we go through life. And I think as Christians, that's the, that's the great challenge, isn't it? Yeah, we, we have been justified by faith. We have faith. We're following Jesus. But you know, what does that mean in our lives? How is that working for us? So I hope as we meditate upon these verses this morning, we can see ways in which the gospel can work in our lives that it's no longer just a, an existence theorem, a theory that exists but isn't actually working in practice. Let's see how we go with that. <clears throat> for, four, for four chapters, Paul's been developing this idea and it's like a fruit that's been ripening on a tree and it's been ripening and growing bigger and, and now the branch is hanging down and, uh, and it's there ready to be picked and eaten and, and we get to enjoy the goodness and the juiciness of it. And so he begins, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have, and we have these benefits. We have three benefits that, uh, that I think are in view here. Three benefits. And the first benefit is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no longer are we opposed to God. No longer is God hostile towards us. That is, no longer are we facing his condemnation we might think that's a little bit hard to say God is hostile towards us, but his judgment was hanging upon us. It's like the wanted posters were out. We were rebels. 
But now we have been justified by faith. The wanted posters have been pulled down. There are, the hostility has ceased and peace prevails. We have peace with God. And that's a very profound idea. And that peace with God should flow into the way we live, into our lives. Some say that this idea of peace is the ultimate goal. And they talk about shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. And that the idea through the Bible is that this shalom is the, is the ultimate goal for life and that the ultimate goal to, towards which God is, is leading us. And of course, ultimately, we will experience that in full in heaven. But we, but we can taste that now. We, are, we can taste the life that is the blessed life. Like the blessed man in the Psalms, blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of the of sinners or, or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord so here uh, the blessed man is guided by the wisdom of God and the word of God and is, and is, and is living the, the shalom it's the life uh, that is the ideal life the life that is content content with what God has, has given us because we know the wisdom of God and we live with thankfulness for that and so we have peace with God and it should uh, infuse our lives. If we have peace with God, should we be living in hostility in other relationships? See, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? If we have peace with God, should we be anxious about our ambitions and desires in this world that perhaps are not being fulfilled? That doesn't seem to make sense either, does it? If we have peace with God, should we be angry about our lot in life? And, uh, and you know, I heard recently the people, somebody say that many of us, many people are living just below the level of rage, even Christians, because of, you know, anger or, or, or at frustrations, at, at whatever it might be in life. But, but that's where a lot of people are at. But that doesn't seem to make sense either, does it? If we have the peace... If we have peace with God. And so we need to, to see how having peace with God is such a profound thing in our lives and, and should flow into our lives and bring peace into our lives uh, in every way. The second benefit is that we've gained access into the grace in which we now stand. You see, when we were justified, we were given access, an access pass, if you like, into a certain place, and that place is, uh, is where we are standing. It's present, it's now, and it's in the place of grace, into this grace in which we now stand. And I think the idea here is that we are experiencing the gracious favour of God, his graciousness upon us. And that's not something we deserve, but it's something that he pours upon us. And allows us uh, to be in His presence. In the ancient kings would be in their in their throne room or their courtroom, and they would be surrounded by the people that they had confidence in, or the people that they allowed in, that they had favour upon. They wouldn't allow in people that they didn't like, or their enemies, or, or people that they that were not in favour with the king. They would be excluded. And yet we are in the presence of God, favoured by Him. And I think we need to, to get comfortable with that. We have to realise that 
We don't have to strive to be in that place. We have been justified by faith and because of that we have gained access into this, uh, this, this grace in which we now stand, this favour with God. We are released, we are freed from trying to impress God to gain access by ourselves. We are freed from the pressure of trying, trying to impress God or, or for that matter to impress others, to show others that we deserve to be there by our good, good works or our religious duties. We're there by grace. We're standing in grace. We're experiencing God's favour. We are free to serve God. We are released from trying to impress God. We're not striving for God's acceptance. We have it. Some years ago I was in a church and a guy got up to sing a song. He was a, he was a really a nice singer and guitar player and he started his introduction to the song and as he began to sing the words, he, his voice choked up and he, he couldn't get the words out and so he started again and he tried again and again. He couldn't get the words going. This happened three or four times and he sort of finally took a moment to compose himself and he got going and he sang the song. And the first line of the song is this, My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. And I asked the, this guy Phil about it afterwards. I said, what was going on there? And he he said, well, you know, as I, as I started to sing the words, I thought about the words. And I thought about my life and all the rubbish and the rebellion that had been in my life and what I really deserved. And I, and I, and I thought about how I've been accepted by God and I don't have to strive and, and here I am in the grace of God. And, and it just overwhelmed him. Just overwhelmed him. We are standing in that place. We've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. The third benefit is that we can rejoice. That's a benefit, isn't it? We can have joy in our lives. And we're told here that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, what's the glory of God here? I think what's in view here is the glory that is to come when Jesus returns. And God's glory will be revealed in all its fullness. And, uh, and Jesus will be revealed in his glory. And we will also be glorified along with Jesus. Lots of glory to come. Lots of uh, glory to look forward to. And so we look forward to it. And so we have the hope of this glory. Now what does that mean to hope uh, in the glory of God, or hope for the glory of God? We need to be careful here because we can get confused about this word as we heard in the kids' talk. Sometimes when we think about hope, we might think about, I hope the weather's going to be good tomorrow. Or, I hope my football team wins the premiership, which if you follow the West Tigers like me, is a very slim hope uh, indeed, at best. But we often use the word hope in that sense. When we went over to Latin America and began learning Spanish, uh, we learned the word for hope, and it's, uh, it's the word esperar, and uh, we also then found out that the word for waiting is the same word. And that kind of confused me because I was trying to say something and I said, well, I'm hoping for this and I'd have to use that word. And then I thought, well, actually, am I, am I saying I'm just waiting for this? 
And there was no difference. It was the same word. And that's really what the idea is here. We're not hoping in a sense that maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. We're actually just waiting expectantly, knowing that it will happen. That's the idea here. And because of that, we rejoice. We rejoice in that hope, that expectancy of the glory of God. Now this uh, word for rejoice, you might see in other translations, is sometimes uh, translated differently. Sometimes it's boasting in God or exulting in God. It's the idea, I think, of having confidence uh, in God. It's a very positive uh, idea and to have joy. And so we have this confidence uh, and, and therefore this sense of joy as we wait for the glory of God. What a nice thing to, 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 to have in our lives. What a great benefit. But Paul goes on even further with this idea. He says we rejoice even in our sufferings. We rejoice even in our sufferings. Now that's pretty strange, isn't it? Because we suffer. We suffer sometimes because of the gospel. We suffer persecution. Or we suffer because of uh, the difficulties of life. We grieve for a loved one. Or we, we, we might go through uh, depression. We might go through anxiety of relationship breakdowns. We might go through illnesses. All of these things are, are hard to go through. And Paul says we can, we can rejoice even in our sufferings. It's strange, isn't it? Uh, are Christians masochists? No, I don't, I don't think that's what he's, he's saying. And I don't think he's, he's saying that we should go around singing joy as the flag flown high and have this sort of bubbly joy bubbling up and overflowing out of us in the midst of, of, of these um, hardships in a way that would be inappropriate. But he's saying we can have this great confidence in the glory of God. And he, he gives it to us in this process, this chain reaction in verse 3. We know that suffering produces perseverance. Yeah, if we, we're going to keep going, we have to persevere. We have to keep going. And as we do that, uh, perseverance produces character. And I think what he's saying here is this character is strength of character, and particularly a strength of character that is a, a trusting in God aspect of our character and as we continue to develop that and produce that it, it produces this hope that we have and this hope he says in verse 5 does not disappoint us you see it is certain because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us we're not going through this process alone we're going through it with the resources that God has given us his love, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been getting into the Tour de France. Uh, maybe some of you like the Tour de France. It's a cycling race. It goes for three weeks around France. France, And uh, it's pretty tough. It's a tough uh, mountain, uh, tough bike race, and they have to climb up these mountains and cycle hundreds of kilometres every day, and it goes for three weeks. And they need resources, and you'll see them drinking drinks, and, uh, and you'll see them eating these uh, energy bars, and, and they have these special gels that are packed full of uh, energy that they, that they take as they're cycling along. And that gives them the energy, the resources to keep going, because they need that. Well, we need the resources to keep going too, 
And God gives us that. He gives us his Holy Spirit and his love that is poured out upon us. He is with us as we go through this process. And so we have a hope that does not disappoint. And therefore, we can rejoice. We can have this great confidence in our lives. Well, they're the benefits that, um, that Paul gives us. And we can also have assurance, which I suppose is also a benefit, isn't it? Assurance for those who are justified by faith. And that's an important thing. And we need to begin by, by considering the cost of our justification. I read uh, recently that the essence of loving is giving. The essence of loving is giving. And the greatest love is to give a life. That's the greatest thing you can give. And the gospel uh, tells us that Christ gave his life for us. And so therefore it's the ultimate show of love, demonstration of love. But who would die for someone else? Who would die in place of someone else? So Paul, Paul says... Uh, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, possibly thinking of a kind of a religious type of a person who is very uh, pious, does things right. Well, this is maybe someone, someone might, but it'd be pretty rare. Well, what about someone who is good? This is though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Yeah, a good person that's you know kind of does good things. Um, it's just a, a good person helping people, a good person in the community. Well, someone, yeah, someone might die for that person. But again, it'd be pretty rare. And sometimes we do hear stories, don't we, about somebody giving their life for someone else. It's often a friend or a family member. But who would die for an enemy? Who would die for an enemy? Well, that's pretty much unheard of. Who would die for an enemy? That's just really not something that's going to happen. So dying for a good person is very rarely going to happen. Dying for an enemy, it's never going to happen. But God says, while we were, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then later on he talks about us as having been enemies. While we were God's enemies, he reconciled us. And so he died for his enemies. Christ came and died for his enemies. Can you imagine when those US soldiers went in uh, in Pakistan to hunt down Osama bin Laden? Can you imagine one of the US soldiers jumping in front of Osama bin Laden and taking the bullet for him? No. Shocking thought. It's just not credible. Can you imagine a, a Jewish person coming out of a concentration camp and, and saying, oh, I'll put my hand up and die in place of Hitler? Not going to happen. You, see, you don't die for those who are opposed to you, for your enemies. I mean, what would war be if everyone was dying in place of their enemies? Interesting thought. But Christ died for us while we were sinners, while we were opposed to him, while we were facing God's condemnation as rebels. Christ died for us. It's, it's incredible. Paul's trying to drive home how, how incredible it is, the great cost, the great shock of it. And it comes at the right time. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that it's while we were still enemies and still sinners. 
Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get a little bit better. We have a little girl, as you, as you know, Annika, and we get her, try to get her to eat stuff that's good for her. And there are certain things that she likes. She likes corn, uh, sweet corn, which I suppose is good for her, but that's what she loves. She loves to eat corn. And she'll just eat corn all day if you let her. But we, well, we better give her some broccoli and you know, some, other, some good things that she needs to eat as well. And so we say to her, look, uh, if you eat a little bit of broccoli, you can have your corn. You know, so, so you just come a little way, do some good things for us, and then we'll be good to you and give you the, and give you the really good things that you want, the corn. But God didn't do that. He didn't say, I'll wait for you to be a little bit good. I'll wait for you to do, to do some, some good things and come towards me in some way because he'd be waiting forever. We just, we just couldn't do, do the good that's required. And he says, while you were still enemies, Christ died for you. Christ died for us at the right time that we might be justified by faith. So that's the great cost the great cost of our justification. So then he goes on to say, because we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So what he's saying now is because of this great cost of our justification, it gives us the grounds of assurance that we have for our salvation. And this salvation here, we, we, we often say as Christians we're saved and we are, but here he's got in view the future because God's judgment is coming, God's wrath is coming, He's saying we'll be saved in, God, uh, in, in, in the judgment that's to come. That's the view of salvation here. And so he's saying because of this great cost that's already been paid for us to be justified, we can be sure that we will be saved. It's got to do with grammar. Now, I never learned grammar at school, uh, but you might know something about grammar. This is pretty easy. It's just tenses, you know, past, present and future. Because you see, he's got something in the past and then the idea of the present and then, and then the future. Because we have been justified by Christ's blood, that's in the past, when Christ died for us, uh, we are justified now in the present and therefore we will be or shall be saved in the future. You see that verse? And then the, and then the, the next verse, verse 10, is a reflection of that. For if when we were God's enemies in the past, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son in the past, how much more, having been reconciled, which we are now reconciled in the present, shall we be saved in the future? You see the logic. But Paul adds emphasis to it by throwing in that phrase, how much more? Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And he uses it again in verse 10. And the idea, the, the idea there is that um, because the one thing has been done, the other thing is, is more than certain. How much more is it going to happen? Because uh, the other thing is done, the, the first thing is done, the next thing is easy. Because we have been justified, that was the hard thing. That's what was costly. That's what Christ, Christ died on the cross for. How much more will the easy thing happen that will be saved from God's wrath in the future? Why? Because we have been justified and now we are justified. In the Tour de France, 
Uh, there's a certain tradition. The race goes on for three weeks. It's gruelling. They cycle up and down these mountains in the Pyrenees and in the Alps. And uh, it goes on and on for three weeks. The person who's the leader, the leader of the Tour de France wears a yellow jersey. And an interesting thing happens when you come to the last day. The person who's wearing the yellow jersey is the winner. There's still a day to go. There's still a race that's going to happen on that day. But the, the person who is winning up until that point is the winner. Now, it's a strange thing, but what happens is uh, they just, on that last day, they just cruise along and they go into Paris and the person who's wearing the yellow jersey, no one challenges him, no one attempts to, to beat him. It's, it's, it's all a foregone conclusion. Here's the winner. Now, just so you don't get confused if you're up at 2am watching the last uh, day, uh, when they come into Paris, there's this furious sprint right at the end where, they, where someone's trying to actually win that race that day, uh, just for the glory of that day. But the overall winner has already been declared before that day even starts. He's done all the hard work. He's climbed all the mountains. He's beaten all his competitors. There's just one day to go, but that's easy. It's just a cruise. And that's what Paul is saying here. The hard thing has been done. Christ has died that we might be justified now. Don't be worried about the future. How much more are we going to be saved? That's the easy thing. That's the certain thing. We can be assured of it. And we need to live with that assurance. I have a friend who uh, works in uh, trading currencies. And he, uh, so ever since the global financial crisis, his company's been in trouble. And in fact, at one point, it was bought out by another company. And he has been going into work every day, not sure if that's going to be his last day. And he comes home and tells his wife, one more day, one more day. And he says it's been terrible. It's been terribly anxious for him, not knowing uh, if that's going to be his last day and what the future might hold. It's a terrible experience. In fact, last week he went into work and it was his last day. They said, that's it. But we don't live like that as Christians. We know for certain what we have. We have assurance of where we stand and therefore we have assurance of what is to come. We have our salvation. And having been uh, living and working in a, in a very heavily Roman Catholic context in South America... And seeing the people there living without assurance, going through the religious motions, uh, living in fear uh, and, and, slave, and, and enslaved to superstitions because they just don't know where they stand with God and hoping that, that at the end they'll be okay, but they don't, they don't know. And so they just keep going in, in, in bondage. But the gospel frees us from that. We have assurance. Because we have been justified by faith. Well, I think Paul here is, uh, is saying not just that, yeah, we've been justified by faith and therefore we have these great benefits and we have this assurance. He is saying that, but he's saying more than that. He's saying that because our justification is so incredible and was so costly... The benefits are incredible. It's incredible, isn't it, that we can have peace in our life in a world of turmoil and hostility. 
That is an incredible thing. It's incredible, isn't it, that we can stand in a place of, of grace and of gracious uh, favour from God. Uh, when people might say, how, how, how can you do that? You have to strive for, for, for the credit that you get. You have to earn it. It's incredible, isn't it, that we can rejoice and have this wonderful confidence even though we might be going through suffering. But Paul is saying being justified by faith is not credible. It's incredible. And so the benefits are incredible. The benefits are incredible. And it's incredible to say, isn't it, in this world, we know what we have and we know where we're going. We are certain. We have assurance. It's incredible. So I pray that we might meditate upon God's word and know that the gospel works for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredibleness of the gospel. How amazing it is that we have been justified by faith. How amazing it is that Christ died for us, his enemies. And therefore, Lord, I pray that each one of us might reflect on these great truths and how it impacts our lives, how it works out in our lives. Lord, I pray that you might continue to guide us by your spirit and pour out your love upon us. Lord, that you might help us to live with the gospel at work in our, in our lives each day. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.